name is Marie Krebs. Um, I am a person with uh, a mixed background as far as heritage is concerned. Um, due to colonial violence, I am still finding my ancestors. Um, I do know they come from the land that we now call New Mexico. Um, I come today uh, not representing a tribal nation, um, not as an expert, uh, but as an ally to my indigenous relatives. I'm a member with the um, Ad Hoc Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Iowa City. I work with Great Plains Action Society based in Iowa City. It's an indigenous group, um, all indigenous group, boots on the ground, grassroots. They do lots of great work in the community. Look them up, I, I, uh, they're, they're phenomenal. Um, I'm working on my master's in social work. I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother. Um, so that's enough about me. Um, uh, some of my personal thoughts, uh, this is, I'm excited to hear um, Megan speak today. I think this is, is obviously an important subject. Some of my personal thoughts on, on land acknowledgements. Um, so when I first started hearing them, I, I, I felt, you know, excited um, due to the pretty severe erasure of, uh, you know, our, our tribal sovereign nations uh, by the U.S. government. Um, just hearing that, you know, was was nice. Um, but as as they picked up steam, institutions adopting them. Um, unfortunately, to me, it became pretty clear that this was. Um, more of a kind of a feel good trend rather than, you know, anything with action behind it. Uh, so the, the happiness kind of <laughs> dissipated for me. Um, and uh, I, I guess I think of the saying, you know, talk is cheap. We need, we need action. So land, I'm not saying land acknowledgements are bad. I'm just saying it is a, a piece of the puzzle. Um, we need action, you know, respectful and thoughtful action to empower human beings. Um, that's what I would like to see with land acknowledgements. Um, land acknowledgement and, you know, pressure your government to honor treaties and maybe return some stolen land. You know, that, that'd be great. Uh, take action to support tribal sovereignty and human rights. Uh, just, you know, the, the action piece. Um, if we're just doing acknowledgements and we're just going to talk about things, let's talk about genocide on our land. You know, we don't. Well, Megan, I'm going to introduce you real quick here. Okay, sounds good. So my name is Stephanie Bowers and I'm the Human Rights Coordinator and Equity Director here at the City of Iowa City. And it's my pleasure to welcome Megan Redshirt Shaw to, um, to do a program for us this afternoon. And Megan is an educator, writer, and a higher education expert and an advocate for greater indigenous presence. Megan received a master's degree in higher education from the Graduate School of Education at Harvard and is currently pursuing a PhD in organizational leadership policy and development with the focus in higher education and a minor in American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. Megan has worked in undergraduate admissions, college access, and college counseling. She is currently the Director of Native Student Services at the University of South Dakota and is also the founder of Natives in America an online literary publication that empowers Native youth to use their voices to fight for change. So with that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, that introduction and I'm just really grateful to everybody for engaging in dialogue today. Um, I'll go ahead and share my screen and we'll get started. Um, one of the things that I, um, was sharing um, with Stephanie was, it's just really important for me to have some engagement from you as well. So um, I will be asking you to kind of in, engage in the chat and be in conversation um, as well. So I just wanted to um, share that first and just say um, again, welcome. 
and I'm really excited to, to be in conversation with each other today. Um, it's deeply important for me to first say to you, Pilamaye Nawopila, thank you so much to um, the City of Iowa's Office of Equity and Human Rights Division for putting this on. I was asking Stephanie about um, just the programming that you have upcoming and, and these conversations that you have. And something that I just want to share about my own sort of positionality is um, the city that I'm currently located in in South Dakota is also a blue dot <laughs> in a sea of red. And so um, many of the things that were shared just about the space that you occupy and that you're, you call your hometown sounded and really resonated with me as well and the experiences that we have in Vermilion. So um, I'm really appreciative that you have this division and that you're having these conversations with each other. And I just want to ask um, everyone to thank Stephanie, too, for putting on this type of programming. Um, I'm really grateful to Marie for opening us today as well. And so um, I just want to say thank you and, and show and extend my gratitude for giving me some time today just to share thoughts that I have. Um, I think it's really, really important for me to share with you that I'm one of many, many, many people that are um, sort of advocating for this work and, and hoping that we can have more conversations around land acknowledgements and responsi responsibility to Native nations and to Native people. So, um, you know, I'm also always in gratitude to my family and um, to my partner and the people that support me in, in doing this work and making this possible as well. So again, thank you so much for sharing in community with me today. Um, I think it's important as we talk about land acknowledgement, and I challenge you to think a little bit more about uh, responsible land acknowledgements um, to um, share land acknowledgement <laughs> at the very beginning. So um, I think one of the things that is important for me to share is that I so often um, through this work and so many Native people, and I am actually going to call on on if there are any Native people in the audience to um, think about some of the questions that I'm presenting today, but I so often am asked about writing a land acknowledgement or what do we need to do, and I am going to talk about that a little bit today, um, but there's no such thing as a perfect land acknowledgement because if there was, we wouldn't have to do them in the first place, so it's really important to remember that um, you know, much like what Marie was sharing, uh, sometimes these words can feel really, really empty to Native people. And while they can be critically important and uh, dynamic and well-written, um, ultimately, right, every Native person's dream is that we wouldn't have to make these kinds of statements, right, that there would be land back, that these things would be returned to us. So um, this is one that I really, really like. It's through a conference that I attend annually called the National Conference on Race and Ethnicity. Um, if you haven't heard of NCOR before and are looking for another community just beyond um, uh, this incredible community that you've created, just to talk about equity and rights, um, specifically in higher education, NCOR is a really great conference um, that is hosted every year at the end of May and beginning of June. And I just really like the, the land acknowledgement that they've put forward. Um, so I'll go ahead and read it to all of you. We acknowledge the land on which we sit and occupy today as the traditional and ancestral homeland of, for me, the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota people, or the Ocheti Shakomi, which is my communities, um, communities that I am related to. We take this opportunity to thank and honor the original caretakers of this land. May our time here lead to actions that uproot systems of oppression and may we come into relationship with place and place-based peoples. One of the reasons why I really like this land acknowledgement is because it's not static in time. It's not saying we're thanking these communities of the past and we appreciate right what was given to us. Um, it wasn't given. <laughs> and I think that so often um, this idea of leading to action and being action-based and having these types of conversations is critically, critically important. So that's why I really, really like this. Also relationship to, to places, um, being place-based people, that's very, very central to indigenous populations. And so um, again, I just wanna acknowledge NCOR for this very thoughtful land acknowledgement that they wrote. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that today. So um, I am going to introduce, introduce myself in Lakota, Michajiki Megan Redshirt Shaw, Lakota Michajiki Shanko Ashtawi, Wazihanaha Hematahan, Ma Lakota, 
My name is Megan Redshirt-Shaw. I am an enrolled member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, but I also have relatives in Rosebud. And um, I am currently, beyond being a student, um, a PhD student at the University of Minnesota, I am currently the Director of Native Student Services at the University of South Dakota. So we actually are incredibly close to Iowa. We're like, right, if there was another four quarters of the United States, um, I think that we would be very, very close to it. So we are right on the southeastern border of South Dakota, um, right next to Nebraska, right next to Iowa, and right next to Minnesota. So. Um, again, as I shared before, we are sort of this little, uh, what we often call it, and I don't know if anybody there has ever heard of this, but we call ourselves a blueberry and a bowl of tomato soup. So um, where I'm located right now probably has a lot of relatability factors for, for all of you. Um, and I'm a student um, really studying and looking at higher education systems. I grew up in higher education. Both of my parents work as faculty and staff. And so I was a young Native person um, immersed in college experiences for the entirety of my life. I went to college, um, I've gone to graduate school, and now I've only worked in higher education spaces. So I can truly, truly say that uh, higher education has been very, very formative to my life. I have been angry at it so many times. I have been empowered by it so many times. Um, I understand the, the histories that have oppressed people that I care about deeply. And so in the work that I do now, I lead the Native American Cultural Center on campus, which I'll talk about a little bit later. And um, we have more than 300 Native students on our campus. So my day-to-day -day role is really overseeing um, recruitment, some recruitment efforts, but mostly the retention efforts of how we keep Native students in higher education spaces. And so often place at places that were not built or created for, or with them in mind. Um, this has really sort of been the, the genesis of things that I really, really care about in the work that I get to do. Um, my earlier career background was in admissions and college counseling. So I'm really, really passionate about um, college choice and college access and how we get more students that don't traditionally get to be um, a part of college spaces to college if they feel like that's the right path for them. I know that Stephanie had mentioned you do have an upcoming uh, session that's going to be focused on affirmative action, right? Those types of issues um, are things that I care about deeply. Um, and then on the more kind of like fun side, I'm an earring collector, uh, avidly, avidly an earring collector, and I'm also a cat and a dog mom. Um, and one of the things that I think Native people are really rooted in are our kinship terms, which is also something we're going to talk about today. And so for me to identify as a daughter, as a sister, as an aunt and as a partner is really, really central to who I am. Um, my mother is a fluent speaker in Lakota. She teaches it at Stanford University. And um, one of the things that she first teaches her students when they come through her class is actually kinship terms. That's how centrally and critically important it is for us to acknowledge not only our kinship terms to the humans in our, in our life, but also to land and to places, right? So. Um, that's a little bit about who I am. I love this photograph because that's actually the president and provost of University of South Dakota behind me, and I got to lead them out onto the basketball court for an honoring of Native athletes. Um, so again, very, very lucky to be able to do work centered on Native people in my day-to-day -day life and excited to share a little bit more with you about that. So um, Typically in a, in a virtual space, right? It's really, really important for me to feel connected to you and for you to feel connected to what we're talking about today. So I'm gonna ask you, no matter where it is that you are, you might be in an office, you might be in your home, but to really take both of your feet and place both of your feet on the ground as you're able, if you're able to. And um, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just listen to me talk for a few moments. And in this moment of silence that you probably don't get to give yourself very often in work or in school or in retirement, right? Keeping yourself busy. I'm gonna ask you to think about your favorite place that's outdoors. And I want you to go to that favorite place. And I want you to walk around a little bit or move around as you're able. Maybe you're flying, maybe you're floating. 
but I want you to see and experience all of the things that you love about that outdoor space. The grass, the trees, the water, the sounds. And when you're ready, I wanna ask you to pull yourself out of that place physically, but keep your heart there. And you can open your eyes. Now I imagine that you got a little moment of peace, right? Thinking about your favorite place. Maybe it's a place that you've gone a million times. Maybe it's a place that you've only been to once, or maybe it's a place that you haven't been to yet that you've only dreamed of, right? There's a particular um, country or uh, ocean or something that you're really, really excited about seeing in your lifetime. And I want you to take a moment after sort of re-entering into your space, your physical space, and think about what is your relationship to land. And this is where if you have the chat ability, I want you to share it with everybody. What is your relationship to land? And you can just write in any of kind of your thoughts or feelings that you have. I often think it's really important to ask this question because when we're writing land acknowledgements, when we're reading land acknowledgements, because we've become so obsessive about the wordsmithing and relationship building and all of those things, right? Oh, it says the chat is disabled. I apologize for that. Um, just hold it in your heart then if you're not able to use the chat. I think I just got that turned around so they should oh perfect stephanie thank you so much so um if the chat is is enabled for you if you can go ahead and share it that would be great and yes awesome i can see them popping up now um so part of the reason why i think that this is really really important for us to center kind of in our conversation right is so often <laughs> In writing land acknowledgements, as I was just saying, um, we lose truly what the relationship is about, right? Which is our connection to land, spiritually, physically, mentally. How often when you're walking around even outside from work or walking to the next thing do you, that you have to do, do you just allow yourself to really actually be in that space, to listen to the sounds, right? Um, to let yourself be peaceful, to look at the types of trees that are around, to look at the birds. Um, and so I really challenge all of you to just sort of think about that as we're in that conversation today and to think about your favorite, favorite places in the world. Um, ultimately, those places are worth protecting, right? And so much of what we do and what we talk about centered around land doesn't talk enough about extraction, doesn't talk enough about protection, right? So just even reading through um, the chat and seeing what other people are saying, right? Sharing a space, growing up on the land, peace, home, reconnection, we are the land, peace and grounding, family escape freedom. I feel more connected to the world right in front of me. My relationship to land is too distant. I've lost touch with it. All of these things that are being shared, right? Nature, home, family connection, growing up on a farm, importance of place, right? Really looking to what your community members are saying, right? About how they feel um, is just something that I really wanted you to engage in today. And so, um, Sometimes we, you know, in writing these things, we don't actually allow ourselves to even be in community with the space. So this is a beautiful article that was written by a scholar named Summer Wilkie. And she wrote, let's begin by acknowledging the land. If you want to sincerely acknowledge the land, go to it. Put your hands in it, put your feet in it. The soil is alive. The microscopic communities in it, remember everyone who lived here, they shaped one another. Go to the forest or to a prairie or a creek. We're lucky to have little green places and public spaces. This is where you acknowledge the land, away from walls and doors and concrete and lawns. I mean, imagine if for many of the land acknowledgements that you've probably heard, you literally took the entire conference outside, right? And everybody stood outside and actually was in community. 
with the shared space. Or um, imagine if there was a writing retreat, right, where you were going to actually craft a land acknowledgement for an organization and you did it outdoors and you all were able to actually experience and feel and be in community. These are the types of things that I think have become completely lost in writing a land acknowledgement is that we don't even think about the relationships that we have. And we as human beings, because we're in this grind culture, right, of go, go, go all the time, I have to get to the next meeting, um, I have to go and do this thing, right, that's really important. We don't even allow ourselves to be in community just as single people, right, alone in nature. Um, and now, especially being very, very close in our in our geographical locations, right? The weather is gonna change. The leaves are gonna start to turn. The snow is gonna come. So how is it that we're actually giving ourselves the time and space to be a part of the land and to be in community? And so um, in sort of frameworking that and really centering that, us in that today, it's also really important for me to define for you what is a land acknowledgement. And again, there are many different definitions that have come about because of this movement. This is one of my favorite ones that has come forward. Um, so if you are looking for resources, this is something that you're sort of trying to further in your own personal or professional career. I do encourage you to look at this landacknowledgements.org website. So as defined by the Guide to Indigenous Land and Territorial Acknowledgements for Cultural Institutions, an indigenous land or territorial acknowledgement is a statement that recognizes the indigenous peoples who have been dispossessed from the homelands and territories upon which an institution was built and currently occupies and operates in. And I can imagine that many of you um, are reading this and thinking about different words that are within it, but there's one word in here that is critically, critically important to me in the scholarship that I am looking at, which is dispossession. Um, again, as I mentioned much earlier in the presentation, Often um, there's sort of is this, the native people were here and then they were gone, which does not accurately often reflect truly what happened in the spaces that we're talking about. And for me, having looked at many different definitions of what a land acknowledgement is, the word dispossession is the singular most important word in this entire statement about how these should be written. And so I do want you to sort of reflect, right, on the spaces that you are a part of on the land acknowledgements that you've heard before, um, are they talking about the true history? And unfortunately, we currently live in a country where many of those true histories are being erased. Um, we don't wanna have conversations about what happened because we, as scholars, as community members, as people that are just trying to live their day-to-day -day life, feel uncomfortable with the idea that people that maybe we were connected to or related to engaged in that dispossession, engaged in genocide, engaged in slavery, right? We're not willing to have those types of uncomfortable conversations. And so, so often um, these types of histories are not being taught to young people. Um, we have many spaces that unfortunately are squashing the ability for people to teach truths. And so um, in your own individual work, I just really want you to acknowledge and understand the power of one word, which is dispossession. And so um, this is just a moment of reflection, not for chat use, because I think that this can be deeply personal for people if they have not been given an opportunity in their lives to truly be taught those true histories or to be truly in conversation with native communities. Um, but it's really important for me to ask and challenge the question to you, do you know how many native communities reside in the state of Iowa? Have you as an individual engaged in learning more about the true history of your community that involves native voices and not just native presence. I often think about um, a lot of times in states, right? There will be kind of those plaques on the side of the road and it'll have something. Um, we actually have a location in Vermilion where Lewis and Clark documented literally traveling through. And so you can read those kind of plaques, right? And it'll usually say something about like, and, uh, and the native Americans, you know, also were here at one point. That's an acknowledgement of what has happened, but it's not actually engaging native voices. It's not centering native stories. It's not centering native voices. So even in your own learning, are you truly, truly in partnership with native communities and native people? And in thinking about those things, right? When was the last time that you heard a land acknowledgement read? When was that land acknowledgement read? Do you know how it was written and who was consulted? So was there a true consultation with a tribal community about the land? Why was it written? 
And this is a really, really important question because so often, unfortunately, I think a lot of institutions feel that this is the thing that they have to do now in order to acknowledge Native people. But my question to challenge to you is who was it written for? Was it written to appease, <laughs> check the Native box, right? And say, we've done what we need to do to acknowledge Native communities. Or was it done with true consultation and true care in mind? So it's just a moment of reflection for you internally to think about and to start to challenge yourself. If I don't know how many Native communities there are, why not, right? What do I need to do to start to integrate Native voices into what I read, into what I watch, um, into my home, into my friendships, right? How do I start to create those spaces for myself? So it is really important for me to sort of place physically where I am located, which is in the state of South Dakota. And to also acknowledge that for the context of those of you that are here, we do have nine federally recognized tribal nations in the state of South Dakota. They have been moved onto uh, what we call reservation communities. But uh, before colonization, settler colonialism, and uh, before the involvement of the United States government, we roamed freely across the plains. Um, we have three language dialects, Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota, that are all related to each other, but different. And um, one of the things that is really, really important to my own experience as a Native person was that I moved back and work with uh, the communities that were really, really important to me. So I didn't grow up in the state of South Dakota. Um, my mom grew up between Nebraska and South Dakota. My husband grew up between Colorado and South Dakota. And for me, I just always felt as a young child that something, you can call it blood memory, you can call it relations, right? Something was always calling me to come back. And so um, in my professional life, when an opportunity opened for me to be here, um, for us to be here, that was really, really important. And so the majority of the students that I currently work with come from our nine tribal nations in South Dakota. Um, it has been a tremendous learning experience. I don't take it for granted. Um, I'm honored by the opportunity to be able to work within my traditional homelands. And it actually really fills my spirit when I can do these types of presentations and share with all of you and read a land acknowledgement where I am on my traditional homelands. Um, not every native person is able to say that for many different reasons. We've been displaced, um, we've been relocated. And um, there's such an incredible resurgence of uh, native, um, native power. It's always been there, but um, especially now, I think because of all of the challenges that uh, the United States has sort of placed on us and put on us, we're making it very clear that we're going to save our languages, that we're gonna save our culture, and we're gonna stand up for the next generation that's coming. So I share this context with you to say that I'm incredibly lucky to be surrounded by Native identity and Native presence consistently, but I also acknowledge that many of you in the audience may not have had those experiences before. And if there are Native people in the audience, you may also have not had those experiences. And so um, I asked some questions for Native community members that might be in the audience, um, just to say that, uh, you know, who here has been asked to consult on the writing of land acknowledgement. And again, you don't have to engage in the chat, um, just something to think about. For Native community members who has been asked to consult on the writing of land acknowledgement at an institution that occupied traditional homelands that were not your own, that has happened to me many times. And it often, unfortunately, makes me very uncomfortable. Um, you must, must be in community with the uh, tribal members that are from your region. Um, it's not enough to just ask a Native person to write a land acknowledgement. Um, it's really, really important that it's coming from people who have the lived experiences of the community that's there. Um, for the Native community members in that process, did you feel that your time, language, and contribution were honored truly in the way that you hoped for? Um, and have you seen that institution that asked you honor those commitments beyond a land acknowledgement? because these things uh, so often we're asked to write, we're asked to consult on, and then we don't actually see spaces or places take the next steps towards repatriation, um, redistribution of land, land back, right? So I take a moment just for those that are, that are native in the community um, and also for our non-native community members to really think about this, right? And, and about the energy that some of the native people are asked to put into these types of things and what that takes away from and how disappointing it can be if there's nothing that comes next, if that's the box that they check. 
And so um, we're not a box for your institution to check. Um, writing a land acknowledgement should be a very long multi-draft working directly with tribal communities, collective and collaborative effort. And it has to have next steps. I think about a land acknowledgement as the very, very, very small base of the building, right? We need you to build a tall building that has sustainable action, that works towards care of land, that works towards care of students if you're in higher education. And we have to be tribally specific, as I mentioned. And there's a very, very good reason for that. One of the things that I love talking to students about is that I think so often in our personal and professional life, we will watch a video or we will read a book or we will read a particular study or a text or we will see something that grabs our attention and it completely changes the trajectory of how we feel about the work that we're doing or our personal life, right? A quote, um, it's a really special moment when you have that happen to you. And for me in the year 2020, um, this report, Land Grab Universities, was released. It was released on March 30th of 2020. As we all know, there was something additionally happening in our world, um, the COVID-19 pandemic that was simultaneously uh, rampaging Native communities, um, Black communities, um, underserved communities, all communities, right, across the United States. And so when this was released, um, it was sort of this interesting juxtaposition, right, of a public health crisis that we were watching unfold. And also my mind was being opened in a way that I didn't emotionally know um, was possible because of all of the things that had sort of been bubbling up inside of me, thinking about higher education, um, thinking about uh, where we go next beyond land acknowledgements. And so Robert Lee and Tristan Atone wrote this report um, called Land Grab Universities, and it was about the land grant system of higher education and how um, expropriated indigenous land is the foundation of that system, um, how little the land was being bought for in order to benefit colleges and universities across the United States, um, and about how those land grabs were happening in communities that weren't even related to the universities that were benefiting from them. If you have not had an opportunity to take a look at this report, I, I uh, could not encourage you more. LandGrabU.org, um, I encourage you to look at your own state. I encourage you to look at other states. There's an incredibly interactive map that actually will show you where those particular land grabs came from and what institutions benefited from them. And this report just completely shook higher education to its core. Um, everybody was talking about this. There have been tens on tens on tens of articles that have been written from this particular study. Um, there are entire initiatives that have extended from this study. Um, and I, I just feel incredibly lucky that uh, we all get to witness something like this in our lifetime. Because I think for Native people, we're thinking beyond a land acknowledgement, right? And this, this report did exactly that for us. And it started to challenge higher education institutions across the country to think bigger, right? You now must acknowledge the data. So many colleges and universities right, are obsessive about data. We need the data, we need the proof. This gave them the proof of where their university benefited from native people. And so um, at the same time that this was happening, I had been given an opportunity to um, write a policy brief through an organization called Hack the Gates, which was really focused on, and at the time um, I was still in the sort of college admissions, college counseling realm. And um, I had been given an opportunity with seven other uh, practitioners to write a policy brief. And the challenge that really had been pushed upon us was to dream big, right? Um, write something that is radical, right? Write something that is your ultimate dream for, for students. And what I'd seen up until that point in my career, and actually when I had written this, I hadn't even started in my position here at University of South Dakota. I wouldn't start until later that year in October. Um, but something both my partner and I have worked with Native students for our career. Um, my parents have worked with Native students in their career. And one of the common themes that we so often had seen was um, issues around tuition and affordability. And this is across, right, so many different communities. Um, but because I was being really tasked with looking at Native communities specifically, 
um, I wrote a policy brief um, based on the research that had been done through the Land Grab University report. And so I challenged um, challenged people that read the report to think about what is a land acknowledgement if you don't have access to the land that you're acknowledging? Um, what is indigenous knowledge without land? Because we are land-based peoples, our cultures are centered on land and centered on particular geographical locations. Um, and how did the creation of higher education really depend on that access and acquisition of land? So um, I released this out into the world through Hack the Gates and my sort of call to action for higher education was um, either you return the land back to Native nations, right? Or if that institutional land cannot be returned to Native nations, then you need to provide free higher education to Native students on their traditional homelands as land-based reparations. I started to really think about um, the relationship that we so often ask students to enter into with the federal government. Um, Native people have not had a good record <laughs> with interactions with the federal government. Um, as Marie mentioned at the very beginning, treaties often were broken, um, promises that they made were often broken. And I started to think about what it means to fill out the FAFSA, right? Um, we are asking Native students to enter into another agreement with the federal government in order to go to college on their traditional homelands. Um, to me, that is just mind boggling and so complex. Um, and so um, this was my big dream, right? This was my big idea. And um, there had been schools across the United States who had already been making this happen, right? Michigan, um, as an example, was a state that for a long time had already had a relationship to native nations in the state to provide free tuition for native students. Um, and through this report, um, through writing, through so many other people's writings, this started to happen. So the University of Minnesota um, launched a free tuition program for Native students. The University of California launched a free tuition for Native students on their campus. Um, so this was a possibility, right? This is something that we can make happen in our lifetime. This is something that schools saw as valuable. The University of Minnesota was actually really a, kind of a cool one because I was a graduate student there. And um, my, my I don't know, who, I don't remember who I was talking to, but I, I said, um, you know, what if I sent this to the president at the University of Minnesota, um, Joan Gable at the time? And they said, do it right? Why not? And she actually responded to me when I sent the policy brief to her. She had already assembled a full task force of people that were going to look at the land grab university um, process. And so it was really, really exciting just to see that they launched this and um, not just credit to my, to the policy brief, but also just to like people kind of pushing them to really think about this. Um, and then to see um, the University of California, which is where I was born and where my, uh, um, uh, I was born while my parents were at Berkeley, actually, and so um, being able to see that in California, um, the state that I loved and, and was um, where I was born and where my family currently is, that they also were waiving tuition and fees for Native students was such a wonderful thing to see. Um, on the flip side of this, right, these types of tuition programs don't come um, easily, and they also came with some challenges for administrators that had to answer to a lot of questions around tribal identity, right, which tribes were benefiting. So I want to say that while these things are possible, it's also really, really important to acknowledge um, that um, there still are a lot of questions, right, and a lot of answers that need to be made. So um, these are just a little bit more in detail about California and, and Minnesota's plans. Um, another that I just wanted to highlight currently in the state of South Dakota um, is another Board of Regents school up north from us, South Dakota State University, um, who actually launched something called the Wokini Initiative based off of the taxes um, through what they received by being a land grant institution. And so um, I like to highlight these programs to say, this is possible, right? This is something that is actually tangible that we can make happen. And this is a perfect example of what land back should be. This is a perfect example of um, if you can't return the land, then these are the types of things that we should be doing for Native communities if their students feel that higher education is the right pathway for them. Again, as I mentioned, this has opened up a lot of conversations around identity, who benefits, which tribal communities, um, are acknowledged through these programs. So we still have a long way to go in these efforts, but it is important for me to show all of you that 
dreaming big and the possibility that we can move beyond land acknowledgements is something that I have seen, which I am very excited about. Um, so again, revolutionary, they provide opportunities for students, um, multiple tribes, multiple factors included. And then also the other side of this is that um, obviously looking at the public sector and the ability to fund these types of programs um, in increasingly complicated state systems with increasingly complicated politic, with whoever the regental system is sort of being swayed by at the time, those types of things can be very difficult. And then on the other side of this, right, um, I'm a huge financial aid nerd. Um, I know many of us have been impacted by financial aid policies or practices through um, money that we've borrowed, our own experiences as college students, if we attended college. Um, for me, ultimately, I wish that all of our systems could just move towards need-based financial aid for all students. Many private colleges and universities have been able to actually um, move towards those types of policies for students, but I think in the public system, we still have a very, very long way to go. So um, again, with those big, huge wins that we've made, we also have a lot of sort of pulling back and having to look at the foundation of what we've created and say, how do we make this better? How do we continue to be inclusive to as many students as we possibly can, regardless of what their identity may be? Because ultimately, university endowments depend on land. That's the foundation of every single university system was a purchase of land or a donation of land, right? And what can, should, does this work like at your particular alma mater institution? So for those of you, again, who attended college, um, for those of you, and, you know, something that I think is really, really important to think about um, for us, especially when we count alumni of universities, we actually think about it as anybody that attended. So um, when we're counting, um, my uh, husband at the University of South Dakota actually is a director of Native Recruitment and Alumni Engagement, which I'll talk about his position a little bit. So um, we consider alumni in sort of the Native realm as anybody that attended college. And I think that we need to be more inclusive in those practices, right? Because attending college at all can be a very, very difficult thing. So when I say your alma mater, even if you didn't graduate, the institution that impacted you, right? What does this look like at that particular place? And it, on the flip side of this, right, there is a history around how your particular college or university was founded. What is the story around land access for your institution? Um, I actually took a group of first-year students on a little tour around um, Vermilion. Yesterday, it was a little bus tour, and it was really fun, actually. It was um, a group of Native students, and we had a colleague who was given a tour, and I learned a little bit more even about land access. We actually were impacted by the Missouri River, which is a really, really special and important river to many of our tribal communities, and um, it completely wiped out the original Vermilion, and that sort of um, extended into this conversation around creating a place where they can edu could educate people in the city of Vermilion. So um, even just that the Missouri River, I didn't know that that had had such a big impact on why the University of South Dakota was created yesterday. So even in getting ready to sort of visit with all of you today, I was really thinking about like, what is the story around land access for my institution? This is a photograph of USD. Um, and then after the land acknowledgement, right? And after we create those tuition policies for students to get them to campus in the first place, what does your campus do for native students? Because again, we're building, we're building a building here, right? We're building something that has to stand for a long time. So the foundation is the land acknowledgement. Maybe it's land-based reparations, right? Through free tuition. But then how are we actually going to keep those native students on the campuses that were often not built with them in mind? Because ultimately land is connected to kinship, those kinship terms that I shared with you at the very beginning of this presentation. It is the foundation of all of our relationships. And because of that reason, that's how we should think about our relationships to students and the responsibility that we have as faculty and staff. And if we think about land as a true relationship, right? Remember what we talked about at the beginning, putting your hands in the soil when you went back to your favorite place, right? Being in community truly with the places that we love and care about, then how are we really knitting that into teaching, into learning, into living and the experience of college? Because for students, ultimately, right, they need to feel that there are people and places on campus that they're support that support them, and that's really central to what we do at USD. Because ultimately, for those of you that are in college settings, there are native students on your campus. For those of you that attended college, that have been engaged in dialogue around colleges, and universities, right? 
so often I've talked to so many people across the country. Well, we don't know if we have any native students or we don't have a native students. You do. You definitely, definitely do. They may be a very small population. Um, they may have checked multiple identities on their admissions application, right? And come up as multiracial, but they're there. They're on your campus. Um, I was one of five native students out of 20,000 students on my undergraduate campus. I had to search incredibly, incredibly hard to figure out who my allies were, figure out where the other native students were, um, but we were there, right? And we were able to find each other. And for those native students that are on your campus, if you think about them coming to be educated on a university campus, what access to land and the ancestral knowledge they've lost. We taught our young people, we taught our community members. Our knowledge systems were a thousand times more powerful than anybody could ever even imagine, right? We understood how to navigate using the stars. Um, we built sustainable homes. We raised healthy families, right? We are the original knowledge keepers. Our knowledge systems are even more important than many of the things that our students are learning on campus. And so really think about what it is that they lost access to. What profit has the institution made with access to that power and uh, knowledge that was lost by our students? And ultimately, do words really matter if we don't put action to them? And it's because we need to do it for students. That's a group of students that are photographed there for orientation. Um, that's a mural that we have in downtown Vermilion, which I'm really, really always very proud to see. We just had another Native-focused mural put up. We have three Native murals in uh, Vermilion. If you've ever driven through Vermilion, please check them out. Um, but even just that imagery and empowering of, of Native people is so critically important. So um, I take my responsibility to students incredibly seriously. Um, it's relationship building. It's about relations. And every single student on every campus should feel that they see themselves within a web of kinship. They should know who the people on their particular campus are, right? This year, I was given a bracelet by a student um, that says ally, and I've been wearing it every day because I want to be a signal to students to know that I'm somebody that's safe, that I'm somebody that's going to protect them on campus based on their identity. And so every single student on campus needs to feel right, that they see themselves within a kinship system, whether they identify with that person or not. Someone who makes them feel like they matter and feel like they belong. And land and our relationship to land has to be central to that concept as a relative, as a relation, right? We've become so siloed and are even walking around campus, not even saying hi to one another, right? But what would it mean if we really truly tried to build out just saying hello to somebody and how much that can change their day. And we can create programs that hold higher education to this. We can be the people that change and ignite to be instead of individual, individual singular and success-based to say, no, actually we're gonna create a family here. And that's something that's really important to them. So um, again, as sort of moving forward and like what's beyond a land acknowledgement, what are the things that we can create? At USD, we have built out an entire, over the last three years, we've built out an entire recruitment and retention team here. So my role is the director of Native Student Services. I oversee the Native American Cultural Center on campus. Um, I have a coordinator of Native Student Services, which is a brand new position that was implemented this year, which I'm incredibly proud of. Um, my partner, John, is the director of Native Recruitment and Alumni Engagement. He created that position because he saw the value in engaging with Native alumni and people that have come through university and also works on the end to recruit the brand new Yotes to campus, right, the new students. So he really is sort of the bookends of both of those experiences. We have a Native student advisor um, named Juliana, who has been phenomenal and is actually a graduate of USD helping students register for classes, understand what they need to do to, to get their degrees. Um, we have a director of tribal relations who um, oversees how we build relationships with tribal nations. We have a native nations recruiter um, who is traveling to the nine federally recognized tribes in South Dakota to build those relationships as well. And then we have a committee called the Student Tracking Advocacy and Retention Committee, which is a group of faculty and staff that are on USD's campus that are really committed to supporting Native students on campus. Some of these positions are new. Some of these positions have, have existed for a long time, even before I was here at USD. So really starting to think about how do we build a team to push this, this idea around um, supporting Native students on campus forward. And that's something that's really, really important for every college or university to think about.
my day-to-day is at the Native American Cultural Center. Um, I'm incredibly lucky to walk into a space that has been in its current location since 1988. So there's a very long history at the University of South Dakota of Native presence. Um, And we've had many, many generations of leadership, faculty, staff, and students who have come through these doors. We host programming. um, We uh, bring in speakers. We do workshops. um, And really, the idea is how do we apply traditional community-specific methods of kinship into higher education? What I mentioned to you before about even just saying hello, right? Um, I was speaking with a student about a year ago who told me that they felt that they had gone through their entire first semester of college without having anybody ask them how they were doing. And that is absolutely uh, one of the biggest nightmares that, that I could ever imagine for a young person who's just trying to figure out who they are, who wants to feel like they belong. Um, just that nobody asked, how are you? How are you doing? Nobody expressed or showed kinship to them. So um, there's a very particular sound that the Native American Cultural Center door makes every time it opens. And uh, every time it opens, I see it as an opportunity for me to engage with a student and ask them how they're doing. For me to have a kinship moment with a student and say, I hope you're doing well today. Can I help you with anything? Right. Um, so really honoring every student experience individually while also creating a network, creating a space where they feel like they can be connected to other people who care about them and who are going to show that same level of care to them as well. Um, One of our oldest student groups on campus is called Teoshpae, and it's really important for me to talk about this concept with you as we talk about these methods around kinship. Um, Teoshpae, actually, in um, our language dialects, is the idea about your extended family or your relations. So when that name was selected many years ago, um, the idea was that you were building a network of students, right, who are going to become like your family, who were going to be there to support you. And um, a student's experience really at college just has to be centered on the relationships that they find. So in talking about all of these different places and spaces and faces, these are the types of things that colleges and universities have to have beyond the land acknowledgement, beyond free tuition, because even if college is free for a student, but they don't feel like they found anybody on campus who cares about them, anybody on campus who's able to support them in academics, in their culture, in their social aspirations, in their goals, in their career, then it doesn't matter, right? And then we're not doing our part in maintaining those type of kinship networks for them. Um, Something that um, we're really proud of that we have developed at USD is um, called the Wiyushkiyaun BTP, which is a living learning community for Native students and for allies as well. Um, Part of the reason why this is something that we're really proud of is because um, this is actually what my doctoral research will be focused on, um, the idea that Native students actually are being compensated to live um, in the dormitories and to be in community building with one another. My mother is a first language speaker, as I shared earlier, um, Dr. Delphine Redshirt, she gave us this name and it loosely translates to where they live contently. Um, We see it as a recruitment and a retention tool and we host weekly programming with our students every Wednesday. So um, as I mentioned, sort of the land-based piece of this is that we do provide them a half housing scholarship. Um, In my own mind and with my own research, um, I'm sort of thinking about this as how do we look at land-based reparations in different forms, right? So um, someday my ultimate dream would be that this would actually like be a full housing scholarship so that students were living on their traditional homelands for free, not having to pay for it. Um, So this is something that we're going into our third year of it. We have our third class of living learning community and it's been a tremendous retention tool for us. Students being able to connect with one another, um, again, live with native roommates, live with other native people who understand their lived experiences as well. And the final um, sort of recommendation that I want to put forward to all of you is um, for your university campuses and spaces or for spaces that you have in the community, um, bringing in Native voices and really centering those Native voices that I talked about at the very beginning. Um, It's not enough to just know that Native people were once a part of the landscape, were once a part of the land, if you're not bringing in the descendants of the people who were affected by those land changes, right? And so being able to um, actually center language center uh, food sovereignty, center education, right? And really, really filling your life and filling the spaces that are important to you with Native voices is critically, critically important as well. 
So again, as I mentioned, um, this sort of rethinking retention, we just have to see our responsibility to these students as educators, as grounded in positive affirmations, making them feel like they belong, building a network of care. And ultimately, that's what should be at the center of every land acknowledgement in higher education, right? Doesn't matter if we're talking about the land, if we're not giving back to the spaces and to the people who are affected by those things. So um, what does after the land acknowledgement really look like at your institutions? Um, understanding the systems that we work within, what is going to work for you? Who are the tribal nations in your area and what do they prefer to be called? Um, what are positions on your particular campus or in your space or in the business that you work for that are missing, that are not in conversation with native communities? And when you ultimately hear a land acknowledgement, right, what will you think of in moving forward? What are the things that need to be created beyond the land acknowledgement? So um, I know that I'm coming up on time here. Um, just one project that I wanted to share beyond my own dissertation work um, is that I am on a Mellon-funded foundation initiative, which I was invited into really talking about land back universities. Um, and so um, I'm on a research team that is actually going to be sort of looking at moving beyond perform performative ideas around land and land acknowledgements. Um, and we have done one convening with a, a group of um, people who applied to be a part of it. We just selected our second convening um, to be able to come and be in conversation with our research team about what that looks like. So I'm really excited to sort of move that forward and to continue to see what the land back uh, movement does in the next few years. I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be involved because ultimately um, for those of us that work in higher education, this is the thing that matters the most. This past year, um, this was our graduating class of um, Native students um, with a few missing. They didn't get the memo that we were going outside to take a photo. So these are undergraduate and graduate students um, who graduated and ultimately land acknowledgement, tuition policies, retention efforts, right? It all leads up to this. It leads up to empowering young people to believe that they can graduate from college if that's what's best for them and that they can go back into their communities with bachelor's, master's, doctoral degrees, right? And they can make a difference. They can be empowered in the tools of um, what colonized them and be able to turn it around and use it to their benefit to empower their people to continue to live on, right? So ultimately that's the thing that matters most in any of the work that we do. And that's what I want you to think about when you think about a land acknowledgement next time you hear it, right? Nice, what's next? What's the next thing that we can do to empower native nations? So um, I will turn it over to questions. I have a very quick story here that I just want to tell you um, very briefly as sort of a personal anecdote for the end. Um, when I moved to Vermilion, as I mentioned, in October of 2020, I was walking down the street and um, there's a print shop downtown. And I looked in the window of the print shop and there was one painting that was sitting in um, sitting in the window. And I looked at John and I said to him, I said, I think that's my relative. I think that's a painting of my great, great, great grandfather because he's very photographed. Um, he traveled with the um, Buffalo Bill Wild West show. And I went into the shop and I asked the um, person that owned it if he could find out who the painting of, uh, who the painting was of. So he contacted the artist who was a native artist in the community. And it was in fact, a painting of my great, great, great grandfather um, sitting in the shop window when I had just moved to Vermilion. And um, if you can't see it very well, he's um, he has a horse behind him and he's standing on the land and the um, what I believe are the Black Hills are behind him, um, which are on the Western side of the state. And um, I felt very much so in my life at that time that it was a signal to me that I was doing the right thing, that I was protecting the land by protecting the students um, and that I had accepted the job for a reason. And so um, I just share that, that with you to say that sometimes um, the things in our life um, that we believe in are, are going to come and tap us on the shoulder and remind us in ways um, of the importance of what we're doing. And um, I'm just grateful to keeping my mind and my heart open to those those signs and signals as well. So um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming today. And Pilame um, no Wopila, this is my contact information if you're ever interested in reaching out. And I would love to open it up to um, questions for the last 10 to 15 minutes. So um, thank you again so much for the opportunity to be with you today.
So there are a few questions in the chat. Um, can you please bring back the slide with NCORE land acknowledgement? Oh, yes, I can definitely, definitely do that. I'll scroll back here. There we go. Yes, that is the um, that is the slide, and I hope that's helpful. And I can um, I can look at the questions too, um, Stephanie. If that's helpful, I can see some of the ones that are opened. Um, so um, I know that there's a question that says um, if a university isn't a land grant school like the University of Iowa, are they absolved from land back and free tuition programs? Absolutely not. Um, I, I, this definitely is a model that I would like for many, I, I would like for every college or university, and there are actually colleges and universities that are not land grant based that are looking at these policies. Um, so, um, you know, some of the foundation of what the study around land grab universities has kind of done um, is about pushing first the land grants, like this is your, you know, one of the sort of historical arguments around land grant universities has always been like, these were created for the people, right? And these were created for um, uh, people for, for better access to higher education. And um, I think that what the land grab university report did is really first push the land grants. And now it's making a lot of other schools who are not land grant based say, oh, you know, are there creative ways that we can also do this, that we can model these practices? Um, because ultimately the argument is around access to land, right? And native communities and their access to land. So um, that's a great question. Absolutely not. And I, I want this to be pushed to, to colleges and universities like across the United States. Another important program for me to mention just as an example um, is actually the University of Minnesota Morris and um, Fort Lewis College as well. Um, those are two universities that actually have done tuition programs for Native communities for a very long time. Minnesota Morris's um, uh, sort of foundation for that was that they actually were a board, they were a federal boarding school. And so as sort of an agreement to, um, you can't undo what, what federal boarding schools did, but sort of to, um, as an homage to what happened on their particular campus, um, they decided to uh, be create a tuition program. So um, there are other models of that that are not just land grant based. Um, so that's a great question. And I, if there's any advocacy that you can do for schools to uh, just think about this generally, I think it's a really important and great thing. So thank you for that question. Um, let's see. Voluntary land taxes. Oh, okay. So I'm curious about voluntary land taxes, either for individuals or institutions to pursue. I think that's what I've seen them called. Are there best practices or models you know of? I don't. Um, that is a conversation that I think has been starting to, to have. And actually, um, as I um, one of the slides that I had shown was South Dakota State University. They actually have a scholarship program based on the land taxes that they receive from being a land grant university, which is like just a genius model. Um, it's very funny because in, uh, in the state of South Dakota, we're kind of like rivals, but I, <laughs> I, I, um, often bring up their, their sort of model that they've put together here into other institutions, because I think it's really revolutionary. Um, so that is, um, it's called the Wokini initiative, W O K I N I. If you're interested in looking, looking more at what they've done. Um, I don't, I'm not as familiar with sort of the vernacular language around like individual, um, but in higher education, like that's a really good one to take a look at. So, um, and then um, another just thing was participating in a program um, for a museum and we have a statement of acknowledgement. I passed this webinar on to fellow docents. Thank you for this example. So I really, I really appreciate that greatly. Um, and then there's some questions I see in the chat too. Um, do you know of any schools that have given back land? 
Um, one of the really cool um, state-focused land back actually um, events that I've seen was the Lower Sioux community in Minnesota recently got actually got land back. Um, and one of our students here actually, their um, father is the tribal president. So that's a really cool one to take to um, take a look at. I don't off the top of my head know of schools that have given back land, but I appreciate you asking that question because um, um, that's something that I need to add and implement to this if there are colleges and universities that have solid examples of actually giving land back. I have um, heard of schools that have been in partnership with tribal communities on like creating community-based gardens and things like that on their campuses. Um, but I haven't actually seen like a, um, I haven't actually seen an example of uh, land that's actually been given back. So I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that question. And I do like that. Um, thank you for sharing the link about Johnson County in Iowa. I will definitely take a look at that too. If there aren't any other questions, um, again, I, I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me, Stephanie, and I'm just really appreciative of the, the time that was given today. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's been very knowledgeable. I think it's, it, it's something that the community needs to further discuss. I think you gave a lot of great information, a lot of um, action steps that we as community members can take. And I just also want to thank everybody um, for attending this afternoon. This program will be recorded and so it will take a few days for um, cable to get it produced, but then it will be available on City Channel 4 if um, anybody joined later didn't get to see the whole program. So also thank you to Marie, uh, Commissioner on the Ad Hoc Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Very much appreciated that you were able to join us and do the introduction. So with that, we will end. Mm -hmm.